Hello and welcome to the Old Time Radio Forever broadcast. I'm your host, Matt Perry. Join us weekly as we explore the golden era of American radio through the dramas, westerns, mysteries, and comedies that shaped the golden age. Be sure to give us a thumbs up or a five-star review on all of the podcast directories that you may use. Hello, Old Time Radio Forever listeners. We have some very exciting news for you. Old Time Radio Forever has now teamed up with Podcorn.com. Having our first real sponsor has allowed Old Time Radio Forever to grow, and because of that, you will now receive more than one episode of Old Time Radio Forever per week, and you will receive two Old Time Radio programs in every episode. Podcorn is an amazing platform that matches podcasters with advertisers that are willing and anxious to work with podcasters from around the world. Podcorn is a marketplace that connects podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorships opportunities such as host red ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and more. And the best part about Podcorn, there is no middleman. Podcasters of all sizes can browse and choose opportunities right on the platform. You can set your own rates and you collaborate with brands directly without any exclusive rights being given up. You never give up any rights to your podcast and Podcorn is here to support you at every step of the way. So if you're interested in working with Podcorn on your own podcast, please follow the link in the episode description or head on over to podcorn.com. And once again, thank you to Podcorn for sponsoring Old Time Radio Forever. On today's episode of Old Time Radio Forever, we go back to one of our most wildly listened to episodes. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar went through many iterations throughout its history. The most popular is actually the 15-minute serials that were every night of the week during the 1950s. With that being an almost impossibility to bring to you in our current format, we have to stick to the 30-minute episodes. The 30-minute episodes are still fantastic views into what made yours truly, Johnny Dollar, so great. In tonight's episode, we go back to May the 28th, 1958. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, investigates the insurance problems with the Midnight Sun on Old Time Radio forever. From Hollywood, it's time now for... Johnny Dollar. This is Bill Chadwick, Northwest Shorty Company. Howdy, Bill. How are things in Seattle? Oh, not bad, Johnny, not bad. You tell me, have you ever fallen for the spell of the Yukon? What are you trying to do, sell me some mining stock? No, but there's a mine I'd like to have you take a look at. Up in the Yukon? Well, actually, it's across the border in Alaska. It's a gold mine, a big one, sitting on top of a rich vein, and... Uh, why don't you fly on out here? Let me tell you about it. Why not? Shall I bring my own pick and shovel? No. No, Johnny. Huh? Just be sure you bring your gun. Bob Bailey in the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. And now, Act One of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. 
Defense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Northwest Surety Company, Seattle, Washington office. Following is the account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the Midnight Sun matter. Item 1, 164.35, transportation to New York, then a mainliner through Chicago to Seattle. The pilot gave us a beautiful view of Mount Rainier and Puget Sound before we sat down, and at 4 p.m. I was in Bill Chadwick's office at 2nd Avenue in Yesler Way. Oh, I'm glad to see you, Johnny. It's been a long time. Yeah, hiya, Bill. Yeah. Hey, sit down. Okay. Now, what was that crack over the phone about bringing along a gun? Well, the men who moil for gold are a pretty tough bunch, Johnny. And sometimes that even goes for the management of a big mining operation. Like what, for instance? Like Universal Consolidated Mining Corporation. Where's that? That's north and east of Fairbanks. Alaska. Yes, even north of Fort Yukon. That means above the Arctic Circle. And what's happened up there? The whole thing sits at the foot of a big glacier. Oh, no problem until recently. Now, through some freak of nature, that glacier is changing its course. No kidding. And from the look of things, maybe a couple of months, maybe a couple of years, or even ten years... Anyhow, they seem to think that glacier is going to sweep down over the mines, the town, everything. I see. In which case, our company would have to pay for the whole loss. An all-coverage policy, huh? Yeah. And it's occurred to me, Johnny, suppose they've suddenly run out of that rich vein they found up there. You mean that somehow they deliberately caused that glacier to destroy the whole operation? It's a possibility, isn't it? Well, a pretty far-fetched one, if you ask me. Change the course of a glacier? A few sticks of dynamite carefully oh, placed. Oh, come off it, Bill. Did you ever see a glacier? Well, why should one that's been following the same path for thousands of years suddenly decide to head for a few million dollars worth of well-insured property? And look, go up there and take a look, will you? Okay, how do I get there? One of the company's planes is taking off from here tomorrow morning. They have their own airplanes? Oh, sure, a lot of them. Big two-engine speedcraft transports. How else do you think they get men and supplies up there? Anyway, you can go along with it. Okay. Okay, why not? Who knows? Maybe I'll strike it rich, come back loaded with nuggets. <laughs> Item two, 31 bucks even for my room at the Benjamin Franklin and the night on the town. The following morning... Well, I suppose I should have wondered why a big cargo plane should take off from a tiny airport far out of town with only the pilot and me on board. Yep. I should have wondered. Act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, in a moment. And now for another episode in the life of Sergeant Donald Bellwether, my husband. Mrs. Bellwether, would my lady prefer to have her breakfast in bed this morning? Oh, what a perfect husband. Thank you, darling. Ah, here's the tray with the coffee, the toast, and the orange. Oh, fine. I forgot the orange juice. Uh, hold the tray, honey. I'll be right back. Ooh, oh, oh, darling, what happened? Oh, I stuck my toe in the corner of the dresser. Oh, oh the National Safety Council oh. was right. No, the what? Last night I read something in a National Safety Council pamphlet. Oh, Reba, and... how can you sit there talking about a pamphlet when I'm dying a slow, tortuous death? Oh, come over here, darling. I'm sorry. All right. Now, what's this about 
the National Safety Council? Did they predict I would stub my toe this morning? No, silly. It's just a coincidence. Only last night I read the statistics that proved that more home accidents occur in the bedroom of all places. Yeah? Not the bathroom or the kitchen or the home workshop. The bedroom. Yeah. Okay, from, from now on, when I walk around the bedroom, I'm going to wear my combat boots instead of these open-toed hirachis. Well, that might help, dear. But what everyone should be most careful of is taking medicine in the dark. Okay, my living safety encyclopedia. I will now fetch your orange. Oh, you're sweet. And it's just too bad that you nice men are so prone to accidents in the home. And the reason is because you brave men usually tackle the hazardous jobs around the house. Hey, I'll uh, remember those kind words as I slowly limp back to the kitchen. One thing in your favor, though, Sarge. Married men stand a better chance of avoiding fatal accidents in the home. Uh, is that a fact? Mm-hmm. You know, in one state, 75% of the men involved in home mishaps were unmarried. Well, I'm sure glad I'm married. Because the accident odds are better? You no, know, because I like my wife. Even when she first wakes up in the morning. Mm, that's my Donald. That's my Donald. And now, act two of yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Midnight Sun Matter. After I met him at the airport, far east of town the next morning, Cliff Murray had the big twin-engine speedcraft airborne, and we were heading north to Alaska. And in case you're interested, Dollar, you're the co-pilot on this run. Oh, are you kidding? The only things I've stayed around the skies since the war have been Piper Cubs, small jobs. <laughs> you know something? When you get onto them, these babies are not only just as easy to fly, but a whole lot safer. Yeah. Want to take over for a while? Well, maybe later. Hey, how come you didn't take this big ship off at the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport? Because of the cargo we have on board. Also, it was quicker and easier to get clearance. We're trying to make time on this trip. Boys up at the mine are pretty worried bunch these days. Oh, why? There's a big glacier on one side of the property. Oh. Closed down to make the Kanakai River. When it gets warm enough, a couple of months in the year to melt. That's all. But there have been a couple of big ice quakes this spring. Just like earthquakes, only it's ice. Now that glacier's heading for the property. No kidding. That's going to wipe out the airport and everything. Unless they can do something about it. Like what? Divert the course of a glacier? The engineers up there say they can do it. And we've got the stuff for them right here. This cargo we're toting. What do you mean? Well, didn't you know? Know what? Why, we got enough TNT aboard to move a dozen glaciers. Speaking of sitting on a powder keg, and this one had wings... But then after the first shock of realization wore off, well, I even took up Cliffy on his offer to handle the controls for a while. And he was right. The big plane behaved like a doll. By the time we reached Anchorage to pick up mail and food, why, well, I was all set to make the landing myself. However, with a cargo of TNT aboard, I was perfectly content to let Cliff set her down, which he did beautifully. Then within the hour, we headed north again over some of the wildest country I've ever seen. Beautiful, old Johnny, in its own way. Yeah, I never realized there were so many lakes and streams up in this country, Cliff. Most of them are loaded with fish, too. Ah, yes, sir. It's up. What is it? I said, the fishing in this man's world is right down there below us. Oh, watch your language, brother. I'll have to strap on a chute and leave you to make the rest of the trip alone. <laughs> a fisherman, huh? Yeah, you aren't kidding. Yeah, one of my favorite spots, right? Ooh. Hey, what's the matter? 
Nothing. Just a little twitch in my side, my belly. Doc said it was appendicitis last time, but he didn't want to operate. But holy baby, that was a shock. What's left? Anything I can do? No, it's it's going now. Sure hope so. Ah, sure. Just came on kind of sudden, so. Hey, it's time to call up lads at the mine to be ready for us. How big is the airport up there? Uh, 11,000 foot runway. Really? Sure. It's the only way to get stuff in for mines 100 miles around. Speedcraft 231, calling consolidated. Go ahead, please. Somebody on duty there at all times? Uh, 24 hours. 231, go ahead. We're over Fairbanks on the hour, Charlie. Roger, Cliff, over Fairbanks. Then roll out the carpet. We'll set down between 1445 and 50. Roger, Cliff. We'll be ready for you. <sighs> and that's that. In less than an hour, Johnny, we... Johnny, Johnny, take over. Sure, Cliff. Never been this bad before. Now, listen. No. You listen. No, no matter what happens, take, take it easy. I'll tell you exactly what to... You can do it, Johnny. You can do it. Now listen. Act three of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, in a moment. With your permission, there's something I'd like to talk about for a minute. You know... Too many times, people try to escape from their responsibilities by having someone else take them over. There was Miles Standish, for example. He was much too busy to ask Priscilla to marry him, so he sent John Alden to pop the question for him. You know what happened. John ended up marrying the girl himself. Of course, if John had had a face like a flat tire instead of being the handsome guy he was... Maybe Miles Standish would have married Priscilla instead. Well, actually, I don't know what got me started on this subject, and unless it was my thinking about people who represent somebody else, take our State Department, for example. Being a representative is one of its biggest jobs. Through the Foreign Service, it helps the Justice and Treasury Departments handle immigration, narcotic, and quarantine problems. And the secretaries of agriculture and commerce look to the secretary of state to help keep their fingers on the pulse of foreign markets so they can keep the business firms and farmers of America informed on matters of import and exports. I guess the only connection between these facts and the courtship of Miles Standish is that, like John Alden, our State Department speaks for itself. And now, Act Three of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar and the Midnight Sun Matter. The rest of this report will have to come to you from the records of the airport there at Universal Consolidated Mining Corporation, far above the Arctic Circle. Aboard the big cargo plane loaded with TNT, the pilot crippled with pain, I was a little too busy to make notes to scribble any fancy dialogue. Here, then, is the story as recorded at the Tower of the Airport. The time is 2.35. Well, there goes the boss's plane to pick up his daughter in Fairbanks, Charlie. Uh, hey, Paul, didn't Cliff about do with 2.31? You said he'd sit down at a... Speed craft 2.31, calling Consolidated. Hey, is that Cliff? Speed craft 2.31, calling Consolidated. 
Doesn't sound like him. Hello, Cliff. No, this is Johnny Dollar. Dollar? Yeah, yeah, it's his passenger. Uh, uh, go ahead, Johnny. Clippins! Look, I'm here to take over for him. He's sick. Clippins! Cliff will give me whatever instructions I need. Uh, you, you, you sure you can make it, Johnny? Surely. Johnny, this is Cliff. Go ahead, Cliff. Johnny can make it. Well, well what about that, that cargo, that TNT? Can you dump it? Please. Okay, then, Johnny, we'll, we'll give you all the help we can from here. Thanks, Charlie. Have you passed the Snake River marker? In about two minutes, I think. Okay, now just remember, your letdown is on a heading of 035 degrees from that marker. 035 degrees from the Snake River marker, Roger. And, well, now just take it easy, Johnny. We'll get you down here okay. Thanks, Charlie. Oh, looks like we may have a problem on our hands. Listen, if Cliff says Dollar can bring it down, he can't. Just you take it easy when you talk with him. Charlie, have you got an engineer down there? Yeah, yeah, sure, Johnny. Stand by. Take it, Paul. Johnny, this is Paul Foster. Go ahead. Paul, we're having some trouble getting our landing gear down. So I'm, I'm going to make some seat banks and... Yeah, I got You you might get the ground crew to stand by though. Because if we can't get the gear down that way, I guess we'll have to make a friendly landing gear up. Oh, okay, Johnny, I got that. Uh, how much fuel have you got on board? About uh, about two thousand pounds. Johnny, this is Charlie again. Now listen. Easy. Uh, Johnny, I saw you make your pass. It appears the landing gear door is partially open, which may indicate it's jammed. Any suggestions? Uh, Paul again, Johnny. The only thing I can think of is try to snap the gear out by a sharp pull-up to give it uh, centrifugal force. I've tried that, Paul. Results are negative. All right. Then before we consider you coming in for a belly landing with all that TNT aboard, I'd like to use up some of that fuel. Maybe some of our brains down here can think of something that will help you out. Okay. Okay, we'll go ahead with the regular procedures and whatever else we can think of. And then we'll give you another call. Okay, Johnny. The time is... 41. Johnny? Uh, Johnny, this is Paul again. Have you tried to, uh, to, to shear the lock pin on that landing gear? Go ahead. Negative. No, we haven't tried that yet. We want to make sure the doors were not jammed partially closed. Perhaps make it impossible to get all the gear up again. You know, if we do have to make a belly landing. Yeah. Uh, okay, Johnny, have you got full hydraulic pressure? Yes, that's affirmative. Okay. Now, the crew chief isn't up here at the moment, but I'll ask him to come up and uh, he can discuss it with you. Right. Uh, Johnny, if it does become necessary to make a belly landing because of the setup they have for handling accidents, you might be better off to do it at Fairbanks. Have you thought about that? I talked to Cliff here. He doesn't think they want us to try it with this TNT we've got aboard. Uh-huh. Well, uh, we'll radio to him and see. Meanwhile, if anybody comes up with any idea at all, we'll pass it on to you right away. Okay. I'll give you a gas check in a few minutes. Okay. The time is... 2.50. Johnny, uh, Don Wilkins, our chief engineer, would like to talk to you. I'll put him on the horn. Johnny, it's Don Wilkins. Have you tried the landing gear handle up and down quite a few times to see if it extends any further at any time? Yeah, we've tried it several 
I think I'd try it as many times as possible, Johnny. There could be something binding that may break loose. Now, there's something on it. There. Well, it comes off the gear door latches, all right, so it isn't a latch. I'll try it a few more times. The time is 3 o'clock. Johnny, this is Paul. How's your fuel situation stacking up now? Oh, yeah, about 9, 9.50. Well, for your information, Fairbanks have advised that they can't take your airplane there because they're jammed up and couldn't clear the field in time. Oh, yeah, it's okay. It doesn't look like we, like we have enough gear to go there anyway. Johnny, this is Don Wilkins again. If you feather the number two engine, and then just as you unfeather it, slam the gear handle down, well, maybe the additional torsion that you get may free the gear. Okay, Don, we've already tried that. We came up negative. I, I think we're stuck with that belly landing. Johnny, this is Paul. Uh, we'll get everything ready for you. Are you VFR in this vicinity? You know, under visual flight rules? Yes, affirmative. Johnny, there's one more thing we'd like to have you try. And that is completely unload your hydraulic system. And then try free-falling your landing gear. Did you get that? I did that twice, and I had no luck with it. Well, let's try it again. All right, Johnny, fine. The time is 3.28. Johnny, we're going ahead with preparations for a belly landing down here. I, I see you buzz the field a couple of times, so you know how much room you've got. You think it looks like much from up here? Now, now listen, we're going to foam the runway for you. You hear me? Put foam on it. We're doing it now, and that'll kill some of the friction. And if, if we can get enough on, it'll help against fire if you have any trouble. How's the wind down there? It's south, about three miles an hour, just light breeze. Well, I want to know in case this thing slides off to one side or the other, right? I don't want to run down any of the other airplanes I can see down there. Not if we can help us. Okay, Johnny, take a run directly over the runway and get the feel of it. Will do. The time is... Johnny, we don't want to seem in a position here of telling you all your business, but I guess we've got to try everything anyone can think of. Yeah, go ahead. On this gear handle business, up and down, throw it in the up position. Just leave it there for a second, and then slam it down and leave it down for, oh, say, 30 seconds after you put it down. You get that? Okay, we'll do that. We hate to be giving you all this intelligence all the time, but if anybody gets an idea, we pass it on to you for what it's worth. But you've got to be the judge. We're glad you found it with us. The time is 3.46. Johnny, how's your fuel now? No, it's back on much longer. All right. They're laying foam on the runway like crazy, but that foam's only going to last about 25 minutes. Now, assuming they started laying the foam at 30, you should land not later than 55. Yes, well, okay, you give us some word when it's completed. We're going to make one little pass and take a good look at everything. Then we'll give it a land. Okay? Roger, I got your remarks. The time is 3.51. wondered how you are and how things look to you. Okay. You got a doctor standing by to take your equipment? Sure, sure. Everything's ready for you. One comment. Listen. Do not. Repeat. Do not feather the engines when you sit down. Good. We'll do 
Okay, Johnny. Okay, we're all set, Tom. We're going to make a practice pass over the field prior to the flight landing. Okay, Johnny, I won't be talking to you anymore. Paul will take over on your approach and get you down. We're all set for you when you arrive. Good luck. One minute, 48 seconds later, we made a wheels-up landing. Cliff, the company doctor tells me his appendectomy was a complete success. A hard-bitten bunch of miners, did you say? Listen, those boys up in that lonely outpost are the salt of the earth. And as for trying to pull something on your insurance company... Well, you should have seen how just one good load of TNT put that glacier back on its course. Yes, sir. I hope the vein of gold never runs out for those boys. Expense account total, including gifts for the lads who really brought that plane down, $600 even. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Starring Bob Bailey, originates in Hollywood and is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone, who also wrote today's story. Heard in our cast were Gene Tatum, Frank Nelson, Russell Thorson, Barney Phillips, Harry Bartell, and Forrest Lewis. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Roy Rowan speaking. to you through the worldwide facilities of the United States Armed Forces Radio and Television Service.
from May of 1958, that was The Midnight Sun. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. After a short commercial break, we'll be back on Old Time Radio Forever with arguably the most popular detective series from the golden era of American radio. Philip Marlowe, after a short break. They were born at the same hour on the same day of the same parents. And they were identical in beauty and talent. Only one was deadly, but the other was not. And I couldn't tell which was which until I found a green purse, a fresh corpse, and a pair of dancing hands. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. With Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Dancing Hands. The telegram I found stuck in the mail slot when I got back to my office after a long and roundabout day read. Enclosed, find a $50 money order. I want you to investigate a man. The table is reserved for you at the saddle club where I work. Come in time for the second show at 11, important. It was signed, Beth Tyler. So at a quarter to 11, with 50 bucks worth of inspiration behind me, I drove over the Coinga Freeway and out Ventura to the saddle club, which pretended to be old English by showing its beams through a flagstone facade. I went in the carefully rough-hewn oak door, and even before my eyes became adjusted to the cozy lack of candle power inside, Neil Redmond, owner and operator of the place, glided toward me sporting his genial host smile, which tonight was even more forced than usual. How are you, Marlo? It's been a long time. Business a pleasure, Phil. It's always a pleasure to come to the saddle club, Neil. I've even got a reservation. You know my food better than that, Marlo. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just don't let it get rough, will you? Come on, I'll find your table out front. I want you to see this show. A pair of twins and a twin piano act that's sensational. Yeah? Edie and Beth Tyler. Oh, here, how's this? Fine. Incidentally, uh, Edie will be the one on the left. Well, they're twins, what's the difference? Plenty. Edie may be Mrs. Redmond one of these days. Well, oh. Redmond, but you are wanted on the phone, sir. I get the number, George, and I'll call back. This gentleman said you would talk to him, sir. It is uh, Mr. Paul Cedar. Paul Cedar. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Excuse me, Marlowe, uh, this is important. Redmond reacted to the name Cedar like a punch in the nose. But I figured that was none of my business, which was more than I could say for a flabby, dull-faced character at the next table who followed the nightclub owner all the way out of the room with a pair of watery red eyes, which he deliberately avoided turning in my direction. But at that point, an MC stepped out on the stage, and so I stopped worrying about Flabby in favor of the first look at my client. The Saddle Club is proud to present its second show of the evening, featuring the incomparable piano stylist, Edie and Beth in Dancing Hands. Here they are, ladies and gentlemen. Bring them up. Curtains parted on a stage set with an oversized full-length mirror which reflected a grand piano, a black vase of yellow flowers, and a tall brunette with a wry, crisp waistline who touched up a piled-high hairdo, put on a pair of long black gloves, checked her hemline, and sat down at the piano. And she ran through an involved arpeggio while her reflection in the mirror looked on in admiration. It was an old but cute routine, and the illusion was perfect because the Tyler twins were practically identical. I took another look at Flabby, whose face was pushed up in a nasty leer. He stood up, dropped his cigarette into his drink, and tossed a crumpled bill down on the table, just as the lights went out for the trick part of the act. 
On the dark stage, two pairs of purple hands danced over two glowing silver keyboards. It would have been good except that the pair of hands on the right, which belonged to Beth, suddenly stopped in midair and hit blue notes like a nine-year-old at her first recital. When the lights came up again, my client's face was as white as middle sea. And the flabby character oozing a victorious smile was on his way to the door. Well, they wrapped it up fast after that. And Beth ran into the wings, leaving Edie to take the bow alone. The band took over in a hurry and brought things down to normal. So as couples moved out of the dance floor and George the waiter headed to my table, I sat back and waited for that message from my client. Compliments of the house. Oh, thanks. Any message with this? No, sir. Just that Mr. Redman had to leave. Oh, thanks, George. I sipped the double scotch and wondered if I should take the initiative and contact my client. When the message I'd been waiting for came, good and loud. I jumped up, shoved my way through the gaping dancers to the dressing room hallway behind the stage. A gang of club personnel was bunched in front of a door, obviously locked. Labeled Edie and Beth Tyler. Hey, Hey, what's the matter? It's one of the twins. She screamed. We got to get in. Uh, That door's locked. Break it down. Uh, Get out of the way. It's Edie. It's Edie. Wait a minute. minute. Hold it. She's all right. Clear out and give her a chance. Come on. Outside, everybody. Beat it. That means you too. Come on. Out. Here, Miss Tyler, take it easy. You're all right now. Come on, sit down. Tell me what happened. I don't know for sure. I was worried about Beth. I came back and didn't see her anywhere. Then I heard a noise in here. It was dark. I came in and someone grabbed me. Man? Yes. I don't know who it was. Mm-hmm. I screamed. He knocked me down. Then locked the door. Got out through the window there. Who are you? Oh, I'm Philip Marlowe, a private detective. Your sister hired me to investigate a guy. I was to meet her here after your number and find out about it. Any idea what's that? No, I can't imagine. But, gee, Beth has been terribly upset ever since last night. Oh? What happened last night? Well, for one thing, my purse was stolen. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't see why that should upset her. Gee, there was nothing in it but $12 and my makeup stuff. Where's Beth now, do you know? No. I haven't seen her since she ran off the stage. I'm not even sure she came in here. No, she was here all right. She dropped one of her gloves. You're still wearing both of yours. Where do you girls live? Maybe she went home. Well, Beth has a cottage out on Hazeltine. 4179. You don't live together? How come? Well, gee, Mr. Marlowe, just working with Beth is hard enough. She's so sarcastic. <laughs> Okay, I'll wear my thick skin. Uh, one more thing, Miss Tyler. Do you happen to know where Neil went? Neil's gone? Mm-hmm. Gee, that's funny. He always stays till the place closes. Oh, he must be coming right back. I'll take a look. Then I'm going out to see your sister. Sarcasm and all. I spent ten minutes questioning the help on the whereabouts of the boss and got nothing but double talk for answers. Since I was still carrying Beth's glove around with me, I dropped it in my pocket and went outside to my car. I'd opened the door and slid far enough under the wheel so I couldn't back out before I realized that the dough-faced flab was already there on the seat. His right hand wrapped around something blunt and menacing in his sloppy jacket pocket. You better come on in. What are you doing in my car, blubber boy? Don't get sassy now, mister. And the name is Sippy. That's no improvement. That's no answer. All right. I, uh... So he inside making with the big talk, so I says to myself, he's an interested party. I should look him up. Maybe we can 
do business together. All right, stay over there. What kind of business? I'm particular about the gutters I crawl in. It has to do with the twins inside there. You can get in touch with me later for further details. I got an angle, mister. You'll see when I leave. Yeah? When you tried to work that angle, you got to the wrong twin in the dressing room. Did you know that? I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay, Sippy, where can I reach you? You'll find out if you really know what's up. Don't try to follow me, though. I'll be seeing you. When Sippy slid out of the car and beat it, I made one move after him and then stopped cold. Because lying on the seat where he'd been sitting was a green leather handbag with the name Edie etched on it. I snapped it open. It had been stripped of everything but the scent of Amir and the smudged slip of paper that read, Number 9 Arrow Motel, Lancashire Boulevard. So that was Sippy's address, and he had the stolen purse. But the why of all the commotion over 12 missing bucks was still the number one question mark. And I figured the best place for an answer to it was at Beth Tyler's. So I drove out to Hazeltine. But even before I stopped at number 4179, I heard the piano. I walked to the door and stood there a moment listening. I eased it open. Slipped inside. Soft, indirect lighting accented the figure of the girl at the piano. The little waves of iridescent crimson chased themselves over the smooth, satin gown as she played. Glossy, blue-black hair fell to her shoulders. The side of her burning cigarettes had a single plume of smoke into the still air. Just for a moment, I found it difficult to remember that she was my client. <clears throat> oh? You're, you're looking better, Beth. You're Philip Marlowe, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I dropped by to return your glove, among other things. Just put it there on the table with the other one. Where did you get it, Marlowe? In your dressing room at the club. Your sister tangled with an unidentified man who was hiding there after you left. While we're on that, why'd you shove off so fast? I was scared. How'd you know I'd find you? You're a detective. Remember? Mm-hmm. Look, if you want to burn up your retainer playing hide-and-seek, it's your business. Now, who's the guy you want me to check on? The flabby one who made you blow up tonight? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Why? Because I think my sweet twin sister is mixed up in something a little more serious than her usual scatterbrain escapades. Hmm. And the flabby guy is in on it because he has a green purse, right? How did you know that? He left it with me. Name is Sippy. He lives at the Arrow Motel, number nine. Knows something worthwhile about this business, and he's anxious to sell it. All of which puts him a hop, skip, and a jump ahead of your detective. Now tell me, why is everybody, including Neil Redmond, all wound up over one stolen purse? What's it all about, baby? I don't know, baby. Suppose you find out and tell me. Wouldn't have anything to do with the fact that Neil loves your sister and you love Neil, would it? Marlowe, I hired you to investigate a man, not to pry into my personal affairs. You'll get more for your money if I stop holding out on me. It's my money. Besides, I'm not holding out. Believe me. I'll try. Real hard. Well, as soon as I've got something, I'll call you. Where are you going now? Uh, my retainer entitles me to know, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. First to the club to find Redmond and get his side of it, and then I'll probably drop in on our chum, Sippy, at the Arrow Motel on Lancashire. Good. I'll, uh, 
keep a light in the window for you. Oh, sweet. <laughs> also keep your door locked. From the inside, baby. As I drove down the dark, winding streets toward Mansura Boulevard, I caught a flash in the rearview mirror of a station wagon behind me. It looked like a tail, so I opened up. But it stayed with me. When it swung out into the left lane to pass, it suddenly cut in front of me. I jammed on the brakes and the spotlight slashed at my eyes, and when my front wheel banged against the curb, I was already half out of the car. Stop right where you are, fella. Don't come one inch closer, I'll drop you. I switched off the spotlight and I saw a face the texture of a doormat over an embroidered purple shirt and orange tie. He had hand-tooled high-heeled boots on and was topped off by a ten-quart cream-colored Stetson. But the doormat face was grim and the silver-barreled cold pistol in his hand looked right at home. I followed you up here from the saddle club. I don't know what your game is or why you're messing around and what don't concern you, but I aim to find out mighty quick, so start talking. Okay. First, I resent being crowded off the road. Second, I resent a spotlight in my face. And third, I don't like pistols pointed at my stomach. So cool off, Jesse James. You're wasting your time and mine. You got it wrong there, friend. Paul Cedar don't waste his time, and you're going to find that out. Paul Cedar, huh? Yeah. Don't tell me you're all excited over a stolen purse with 12 bucks in it. Twelve dollars? Yeah. Listen, clown, there's 30 grand missing somewhere between Redman and me, and I'm going to get it. 30,000? Yeah. Redman's a high roller, and that's okay with me. But he lost it fair and square, and I joined over in Nevada, and I've been holding his markers much too long. So if I have to chalk that dough off to experience, it's going to be a pretty unpleasant experience for a certain party. Get me? Yeah, I get you. But you're shoving the wrong way, Longhorn. Somebody's trying to make a fool out of me, bright boy. And I don't stand for that. I'm liable to shove a lot of ways. And hard. So don't get underfoot. Now, you're sure to get stepped on. So long, dude. In just a moment, we'll return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first... Tomorrow marks the anniversary of an important event in American history, the signing of the first peace treaty between the Indians and the Plymouth colonists. In commemoration of these events, CBS's Sunday night stars, Amos and Andy, will be found with a kingfish bearing the hatchet deeper than ever in their hopes and dreams. And CBS's own Jack Benny will be back again tomorrow with his special guest, Van Johnson. Invite some friends over. Sit back and enjoy the Jack Benny program. You can hear Amos and Andy every Sunday on most of these same CBS network stations and Jack Benny over them all. Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Dancing Hands. When the Texan from Nevada galloped off in his trusty station wagon... I forgot all about Neil Redmond and headed instead for Sippy and his further details at the Arrow Motel on Lancashire, where Bungalow 9 turned out to be an all-alone green and white collection of clapboard that showed light, a half-open door, and nobody home to my knock. When I tried knuckles on wood again and still got only a faint echo for reply, I stepped inside. There in the center of an ivory-white throw rug and clamoring for attention like an only child at a family reunion was a wide and wet circle of red. There, the ugly splotches that narrowed as they got farther away trailed off until, finally, in the next room, the path ended where I expected it to. The quiet form of Skippy, sprawled over an upset chair and holding his hands tight against the red on his left side. When I got to him, he was going fast. Thirty grand. 
lot of dough. Didn't know I was shooting that high. And the, the twins... One, one, one what, Sippy? One of them. Did one of them do this? One, one. He's dead, isn't he, Marlowe? Yeah. Yeah, Redmond, he's very dead. Oh, no, Marlowe. I only found him a few seconds before you did. Yeah, and the rest of that run, you heard someone coming, you didn't want to be seen, so you ducked back out of sight, huh? I don't buy it, Redmond, because for one thing, it's too pat. For another, how do you explain being here in the first place? Come on, fast. Okay, I'm here because I'm on a nasty jam. Like what? Like $30,000 I've got to pay in the next hour to a guy named Paul Cedar who's running out of patience in a hurry, believe me. About that, I do. I've already met the gentleman. Right now, Redmond, we're talking about Sippy. Okay. Last night, I had things to do, so I gave Edie Tyler the money for the payoff to Cedar. A couple of minutes after she stepped out of the club, somebody roughed her up and got away with a purse and the 30 grand. You're a liar, Redmond. Edie herself told me that purse only had 12 bucks in it. How come? Simple like, Marlowe. In my business, you never yell copper too soon or too long. It doesn't pay. Mm -hmm. Now look, for the third time, Redmond, you and Sippy, how do you figure? I don't know. He was at the club tonight, acting funny. When he left, I got a glimpse of Edie's green purse sticking out of his topcoat pocket. Later on, I saw him run away from a car near the club, so I followed I ended up here a couple of minutes behind him, and that Marlowe was a truth, I swear. Which you do at the drop of a... Hey, wait a minute. Look, if you're telling the truth, I begin to get a different picture. And by that, I specifically mean a very talented but very sly dame named Beth Tyler. Oh, no, Marlowe. Why not? Because you love Beth's sister? Face it, Redmond, it doesn't add up any other way. Sippy here couldn't have stolen that purse meaty. If he did, he'd have taken his dough and blow and not spent his time putting out feelers. But on the other hand, if Sippy happened to see Beth take it from Edie, empty it and toss it away, we've got another story, right? Yeah. Because he wouldn't make a move until he knew how much he had gotten away with. Exactly. But there he ran into trouble because he was trying to get close to Beth. And in doing that, he got mixed up and went for Edie instead, like tonight at the club. Sure. And that dying man's words just now about one twin. To which you can add the unpleasant fact that I personally ran off at the mouth when I was up at Beth's an hour ago. She knew where to come for Sippy. Look, Redmond, it's got to run that way. I'm sure of it. Well, maybe you're right, Phil, but right or wrong, I'm still in the jam. So if you don't have any objections, I'm going back to my club now for a last try at raising that money again before Cedar shows. You mean you're going to face him, Neil, with or without it? I've got a model. You see, I own a fast club, all right, and I gamble a lot, too. But I don't welch on my markers no more than I knock over flappy little guys. You know what I mean, Phil? I think so. But don't fold now, Neil, because... I might still be lucky enough to catch up to Beth Tyler and your money both before your time runs out. And right now that means fast to a phone and call to Edie, who might know which way a runaway twin would head. I'll see you, Neil. The nearest phone was at an all-night mobile gas station a block away. As I dialed Edie's number, a thought hit me. Maybe Beth wouldn't head anywhere. Maybe she'd just stick around. <laughs> Hello? Edie, this is Marlowe. Seen anything of Beth? No, I haven't. But why? What is it, Marlowe? Well, from where I stand, two things. First, your sister has the $30,000 and $12 that was in your purse last night. Oh? And second, she's just about it for a sloppy around the edges murder. Oh. Now, look, have you any idea where Beth would head if she had to get out of town in a hurry? No, I don't, Marlowe. Oh, well, maybe somebody up around her place does. I'll call you later. Marlowe, wait. Are are you sold on this? 
I mean about the things you said Beth did? Just about, Edie. But for your sake, let's hope I'm wrong. All the way, honey. Goodbye. Driving fast back toward Beth's place on Hazeltine still left me enough time to think about a not-too-small detail that I completely overlooked. Thanks to me, the entire Los Angeles Police Department knew nothing about what was going on in and around the Saddle Club. Five minutes later, when I had parked away from the dock and obviously deserted number 4179, I had walked back and around to a pair of uncurtained French doors at the side. I knew that oversight is what is generally called a blunder. But in the next second, I knew it was nothing compared to the one I was making currently. If you so much as turn your head again, Marlowe, I'll kill you. Not like you did Sippy, please, Beth. I'd hate to go that way. Sippy was a mistake, Marlowe, believe me. I was rushed. So you shot and ran, huh? Yes. But I didn't run too far. Because from where I stood, I could hear and see both you and Redmond and talking the whole thing over. And when you knew that we'd caught on to your act, you decided to follow me and see where I was going before you made your next move. Is that it? Exactly. Now get inside. Go on. The door's unlocked. Mm. All right. Now get over there. Near that closet. And don't turn around. Why not? Afraid of the look on my face when you shoot? Shut up, Marlowe. And stop being brave. Because unless I have to, I'm not going to kill you. After all, you've already served your purpose. Which I presume was getting mixed up in this mess just long enough to find out about Sippy for you. You presume correctly. Mm -hmm. Also, you talk too much. Now open that closet and get inside. All right. Go on. As you say. But first, baby, one question. Did you do all this for the 30 grand alone? Or does it tie in with Neil Redmond and the way he feels about your sister, Edie? It's a little bit of each, Marlowe. But as I said, you talk too much. So get in there and shut up. Getting out of Beth Taylor's half-inch thick old closet was like arguing with an umpire. You couldn't be subtle. So 20 tiring minutes went by and the heels on both my feet were numb before the paneling finally gave in and I was out and over to the telephone to put in a call to the police. It should have been made a long time ago. But then, even as I was halfway through dialing the numbers... I saw something on an end table nearby that made me slowly change my mind. It was the two black gloves that Beth wore in the Dancing Hands Act. And while I stared at them like they were alive and beckoning, I thought hard for what must have been a full minute. And then suddenly I knew that my next stop had to be the Saddle Club. As I parked at the Saddle Club, I saw light drifting out of Neil's office, which was something I had expected. Inside, I moved along a dark hall toward what I knew would be the trail of Neil Redmond, the Nevada Texan, and Eddie Tyler. All right, Redmond. The raucous voice of Paul time. Cedar was anything but happy. How stupid you think I am? Oh, oh, that's Cedar, I'm telling the truth. Edie had the 30 grand, but somebody got it from her when she was on her way to you. That's a stinking line. You know it, Redmond. You never had the money. This whole thing's been a frame to stall me. And one way or another, I'm going to get you to admit that. Oh, you're not, Cedar. Uh, and if you don't drop that gun now, you're never going to do anything ever. Come on, let it go. Uh, All right. Now sit down and shut up and listen hard because Redmond's telling you the truth. What? Paulo, you know where the money is? That's right. And I also know who took it. Less than an hour ago, a little after I called you, Edie, Beth caught up to me and confessed the whole shebang, exactly as we figured it, Neil. You mean she admitted getting the money from Edie and using you to locate Sippy? That's right. But there's only one drawback to everything she admitted. None of it's true. What do you mean, Marlowe? I mean, Cedar, that Beth Tyler didn't steal your money from Edie here any more than she killed Sippy. I also mean that as far as I can tell, Beth Tyler was nothing more than a girl who played the piano and got upset when a stranger named Sippy started to bother her. 
And I ever saw the real Beth Tyler after she ran away from the piano in the club tonight. That she's dead and that you eat even posing as Beth all night because, one, you yourself stole Neil's money and, two, you murdered your sister as well. No! Yes, Edie, come on, admit it, it's true. No, no, it isn't. I... I guess it is at that, Marlowe. In Beth's body? In our dressing room. In the closet. I didn't want to kill her. But she found out that I had only pretended to be robbed when there was no one around. And that Sippy had seen me scream and get rid of the purse myself. Sippy, who was only trying to muscle in on a deal, went to her by mistake, huh? Yes. That's how she knew what I'd done. When she confronted me in the dressing room, just before you came in, and said that she wouldn't stand by and let me do a thing like that to Neil. I lost my temper. You killed her, Edie. Yes, I did, Neil. And when Marlowe showed up after a scream, I said that someone had attacked me. And then I pretended to be both Beth and myself from there on to get out of the whole thing. And I... I almost did. But... But now I'm so sorry. went by before the police had everybody's story and Paul Cedar and the 30,000 was gone for Nevada and Edie was gone for good. That left just Neil Redman and me alone and standing near the main bar in the club. <laughs> Neil was doing his best to stay all in one piece. Well, Marlowe's been a tough night for you, hasn't it? Yeah, but a tough one for you, Neil. What with Cedar and the money and the girls, Marlowe? Yeah, yeah. Lisa came out right before the cowboy got too tough, thanks to you. <laughs> So tell me, Phil, how'd you know that Beth was dead and that Edie was both people all along? That was a couple of gloves, Neil, the ones they wore in that dancing hands act. You see, when I first met Edie in the dressing room, she was wearing hers, and one of Beth's was on the floor. Hey, call me one, will you? Yes, sir. Okay. I took it, and later when I met what I thought was Beth, I returned it, and she put it with what we both thought was its mate. Yeah. Thanks. But a little while ago, when I got close to the gloves again, I saw that that couldn't be, that they were both for the left hand, Neil. Ah, then when Edie went to Beth's place to pass herself off as her sister, who she had already killed, she was smart enough to know that she should have only one glove around. Yeah, but not smart enough to think about which glove it should be. From there, I worked backwards. Until you got to the three of us at the club and tried what you knew might be the right answer. Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, you were right, Phil, all the way. Yeah, but I was still gambling. If I had been wrong, Neil, I was giving the real Beth a long head start. Mm. It's always that way when you gamble, Phil. I know. Sometimes you pick right, sometimes wrong. Mm -hmm. Cards, dice. <laughs> Even with twins. Good night, fella. When I finally got to my car, started out of the valley and back toward Hollywood, it was better than 8 o'clock in the morning. And here and there as I drove, I... I saw people who I'd never heard of and who, well, who'd never heard of me, stumbling outside after their morning papers. And I got to wondering what they were going to think when they read about a girl who had killed both a twin sister in a nightclub and a flabby guy in a motel who wasn't much good. Oh, well, it was hard to say. And for myself, I was too tired to think. Or maybe I just didn't want to. Thank you.
Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Vivi Janis, Lou Krugman, Ed Begley, Paul Fries, and Bert Holland. The special music is by Richard Arunt. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... When it started, it was simple. Just a lawsuit for damages. But before it was over, it was far from simple, and the damages were murder. All because of a red-headed woman, a ghostwriter with ambition and a match that burned with a bright green flame. (laughs) 